Hey everyone, how are you doing? Welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. And today I'm in conversation with Lizzie Daly. You can find out more about Lizzie at www.lizziedalywildlife.com. That's L I Z Z I E D A L Y wildlife.com. And Lizzie is a wildlife filmmaker and presenter. You can find her on Twitter at underscore Lizzie Daly. And I've included a link to her YouTube channel, which includes her showreel, in the show notes. Lizzie is a biologist and a broadcaster a wildlife filmmaker both in front of and behind the camera for BBC Earth Unplugged, CBBS, and Nat Geo Kids. She's also the founder of the fantastically named Do You Suck Plastic Waste campaign that now reaches into five UK cities. I met Lizzie this summer at BBC Countryfile Live and her energy, enthusiasm and passion came across immediately and I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to speak to her for this podcast at Cardiff Public Library earlier this year. In this conversation, we discuss how her early persistence to succeed academically, despite not finding it the most natural thing, translated into a determination to succeed in wildlife filmmaking. We talk about the importance of exercise and endurance to both her and me, and we cover the role that technology has played in helping, to her to de- in helping her to develop films for herself and build a wildlife filmmaking career from scratch. We also talk about her passion for African elephants and for British wildlife, and we share our respective views on puffins and other seabirds. Lizzie also describes how past mistakes, including what seemed like a serious mistake during one of her auditions, set her up for future success. This is a really fascinating podcast, lots of energy, lots of enthusiasm, and I really hope that you enjoy it. And as always, the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find out more about us online at www.wildvoicesproject.org and at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and Stitcher. And I want to give a shout out to some of my fellow nature podcasting companions. So please do check out our sister podcasts with Ben Eagle, which is Meet the Farmers. You can find that at thinkingcountry.com forward slash meet hyphen the hyphen farmers hyphen podcast. And of course, Johnny Rankin with the one and only heavy metal dovestep the podcast which you can subscribe to in iTunes right i think that's enough from me now let's dive in to this fantastic episode I don't know. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Okay, well, welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Thank you. It's a few weeks since I've done a recording, actually. It's nice to get back into the rhythm of this. Warming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you tried yes. the vocalisations? I was doing it in the car on the drive home. Nice. Yeah. Singing to Britney Spears on the way. 
How did you know? I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to start where I often start, which is by asking your based in Cardiff I don't know whether or not you live in Cardiff but how do you fit nature and wildlife into your day or your week living in Cardiff um it's not always easy it's mm. a very built-up city but I kind of take pleasure in finding the wild spaces within a city so I am from Cardiff as you can probably tell <laughs> <laughs> um I've just moved back from Bristol where I was based in my master's um but yeah Cardiff is home and there are wild spaces and I do try and fit what I can into my day-to-day so I love running, like you. Um, one of my local spots is Roth Park. It's just about three miles from my house. It's a beautiful urban lake, and in it is everything, all types of birds. Um, got like hundreds and hundreds of coots and shags and cormorants. It's a really lovely place. Unfortunately, lots of terrapins, um, which I was watching the other day, funnily mm. enough. But it's just like a really lovely wild spot right in the heart of Cardiff. Um, yeah, it's one of my favourites. Okay, and where did your interest passion for wildlife nature come from in the first place was it childhood or was it later on it was the cliche childhood it it totally (laughs) I know everyone says that when I was six but it it totally was and I have my dad to thank for that so we spent a lot of time just going out for walks and my whole family really we just for our summer holidays we put on a rucksack and go traveling in the outdoors around around Europe and go camping and I think that was the initial you know, my parents aren't particularly lovers of wildlife, um, but it was that initial uh, exposure, I guess, to nature through going outdoors and exploring. And then from there, really, um, I've always had this love for elephants, fascination. I mean, they're, they're an iconic animal. I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say that it's hard not to love an elephant. They're very charismatic. Um, but yeah, then I, then I got uh, to know a certain uh, lady, Joyce Poole, I say I know her, I don't know her, I'm a huge fan of her. (laughs) Um, She's leading expert in elephant communication and a lot of conservation work out in Africa. So I read one of her books, Coming of Age with Elephants, and I was like, I want to be her. So yeah, it's just uh, exposure to the outdoors through family and growing up and then following my passion. Did you become interested in elephants elephants from afar or on your holidays? Did you get to see them ever when you were growing up? Never got to see them until I was in my teens, so yeah, a good couple of years ago now. Um, But yeah, it was always kind of a far-fetched, magical thing, uh, an idea that only I could connect with through books and online and like just reading about it really. Mm. I never got to see elephants until until I was much older, which made it all that more special, I've got to say. What was that first time you saw them like? Ah, it was amazing. So I'd obviously seen elephants in zoos, but I don't really count that uh it's not quite the same obviously when you see yeah. it in a zoo for the first time you're like whoa that is as epic as I imagined mm. but it's a whole nother level when it's in the wild yeah. and really it was an incredible moment and I was like emotional and <laughs> I get really <laughs> I think you know from country life, I get so emotional when it comes to animals and wildlife I just I'm a bit of a pleb when it comes to that but it was fantastic yeah <laughs> and where uh where whereabouts was that that was in a place called Neisner in South Africa. Okay. So I was there um, to do, because it's research that I wanted to go into, so mm-hmm. it was getting a taste of research. So I went to go see some, some wild elephants and then also do my own research project. It was in a kind of um, tourism slash research place where you're giving money back to help these elephants that have come over from all over 
Africa mm-hmm. who can no longer survive in the wild. So it was a great first time, but it left me wanting to go back for more because, again, it's kind of that whole... Uh, um, it's not quite wild, wild, which is still what I was, I was really after. And that's something that I really experienced this year in Kenya. I've been back a few times. Um, this is my third time back and I went to Kenya and I really got to see what it is to be a wild elephant. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, how long were you out in Kenya for this time and what were you doing there? Okay, so I'll be hours talking about this. <laughs> um, yeah, so I... I knew it's a human to elephant conflict I want to focus on for my research. Yeah. And that's come about through throughout my uh, my own research into conserving elephants. From the beginning until now, it's become more and more apparent to me that I can't just discount the human side of what it takes to conserve these animals. Mm-hmm. As a young girl, I was like, all we have to do is protect them all and it'll all be fine. But actually the reality is that's just not how it is on the ground and um yeah so i contacted a conservation organization back in november i knew i wanted to focus on human to elephant conflict and i knew that kenya was the place where it's highest in the whole of africa so they're called space for giants they're Mm -hmm. a fantastic organization and i said i want to come out and spend some time with you and i'll help make some um videos basically some conservation videos and send Mm -hmm. a message so out I went for three months um, yeah and I got a real inside look at what it is to conserve elephants from the conservationist point of view but also it opened my eyes to what it's to what it's um, as to what it's like to be a local and have an elephant as a neighbor and um, essentially what's happening in the dry season in particular which is January February time there are there's just a lot less food it all dries up and they've had a couple of really dry seasons in the past few years Mm -hmm. and so elephants are being pushed um out of their natural environments a their natural environments are um basically decreasing kenya is one of the most growing places at the moment in terms of population of humans so that's an issue in itself but um the dry season combined means that they're then raiding people's crops so they're going in eating all the crops and the people are retaliating because that's their livelihoods they rely on these crops to survive and there's that conflict and that clash and so people are dying or getting injured or their houses destroyed elephants are dying people's attitudes towards elephants are completely warped and uh for me i was like for the first time i was like okay if i really am serious about protecting elephants I have to take the people who live there and experience these conflicts every single day, I have to take that into consideration as well. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy for me, a young, I'll say it how it is, a young girl who's a Westerner to come over and say, you should be doing this, you should be protecting the elephants, when I don't really know what it's like to be on the ground. And in spending that time there for three months, I got a whole new perspective on it, um, on the ground. And it's really hard for a lot of the local people. So, yeah long-winded answer but that's what I was doing there (laughs) so there are there are what three four hundred thousand African elephants left in the world right yeah um and we often hear about the ivory trade Mm. as one of the key impacts on them but what what kind of proportion of the impact is this is this human elephant conflict on them how big a role does that play in their in the decline of their numbers in Kenya, so I was in a county called Laikipia, mm-hmm. and in that county it's matched 100%, if not right. more. Right. Um, I think uh, the Western world, and generally everyone always assumes poaching is the yeah. main cause of uh, decline in numbers. 
absolutely not true. And I think going forward, if, as I say, we're going to take conservation seriously, we need to start thinking about coexisting alongside with elephants and what it's like for the people on the ground. Poaching is, I'm not kind of taking it away from poaching, it is still in high numbers. Um, it does definitely depend on where you are in Africa um, mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, you might be interested in it actually, one of the previous episodes yeah. of the podcast was with um, Ashley Bell, okay. who's an actress in the US, but she's been out to Southeast Asia and made a film about the Asian elephants okay. being taken into the entertainment industry. Yes. And okay. I'd never realised that their numbers are just 10% of the African elephants. Mm. There's only 30 or 40,000 of them left. But it's a similar, similar set of problems. That, yeah, exactly. It'd be really interesting to find out actually if the strategies they're using in Kenya or with African elephants are the same in in Asia. Okay, well, um, I can make a connection for you after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, mm. Only because one of the main strategies uh, that they're using is this organisation is fences. I'm right. Sure you know. Yeah. So fences there are currently the top mitigating strategy. Mm. Essentially, it works, but then it, to me, it kind of is a bit alien because it's like you're trying to coexist with them but you're fencing them away from there's no coexistence there yeah and um if there was a way of perhaps managing the land better or providing an environment where we can both exist as opposed to just segregating us that would be the ideal but it's never that simple <laughs> <laughs> i wish i wish it was that simple what is it that fascinates you about elephant communication and what 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 interested you or inspired you about Joyce Poole as well? Oh, I, oh <laughs> gosh, she's so cool. <laughs> You've gone so, over all that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so after I read her book, I was like, I need to go out and just be her. So I wrote her an email and I was like, we need to just, this is a simple solution. I was quite young. I can't remember how old I, I was, but it was when I had one of those really dodgy email addresses, like x.101, xoxo, <laughs> underscore, daily, spelled with like three Ys. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I emailed her and I was like, look, I have a research proposal. I had no idea what it's like to write any research. I was really young. I think it was school time, end of school. Um, yeah, so not that young. High school time. Anyway, completely naive. I was like, why don't we put all these huge speakers in trees, in tree trunks. Let's just dot them around the whole of Africa, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> and from these, because um, basically she's built up this database of calls, right? Uh-huh. So it's really, she's fantastic in that she's created almost like a dictionary of vocalizations for what they mean for, across elephants. So uh, my idea was to put these speakers in trees where you um, emit playbacks. And if it's a, a bull male, which often that's where the conflict comes from, it's a rogue bull male. Um, if he is crop raiding and then a call of a female comes from that direction, maybe he'll be inclined to go towards the call. Wow. Amazing idea, right? Yeah. Firstly, these speakers cro cost thousands of pounds <laughs> in a place where right. they don't have a lot of money yeah. um, and secondly how are you going to power it how are you going to like maintain something like that but you see what I mean it was kind of for I me I see what you were thinking yeah yeah I think for um, a naive young person I was already trying to think about ways that we can try and mitigate it um, but she actually took the time to respond to me and it may have been a little bit like oh maybe go back to the drawing board and think about further ideas or develop your research um, and that's what I did and yeah I just find her amazing and an elephant communication is so important in 
helping how, um, I guess you can utilise elephant communication in trying to mitigate that conflict. And I hope maybe there'll be something like that in the future if it's mm. a better idea. But yeah, she's really kind of pushed our understanding of it. So, Have you been in touch with her since your first email exchange? I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so back in November when I was like, I want to come and work um, out in Africa and, and do my own research. This is what I want to focus on. We, we chatted then. I, I have sent her a few emails between the first contact and then and um, I've got to know her and her daughter actually uh, they run Elephant Voices so yeah I'm in contact with, with her um, I wouldn't say she really really knows who I am but she knows I exist which is enough <laughs> <laughs> well done <laughs> um, right we've gone deep on elephants sorry quite early. Okay. no 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 it's good no um, uh, yeah yeah uh, where did I want to go next? Um, <clears throat> Do I need to talk louder or anything? Do you want me to speak up? No, I think you'll be fine. But okay. Um, okay, I'll make sure I'm nice and... Um, uh, where did I want to go next? So, uh, I saw in one of the videos on your YouTube channel... Oh, gosh. Um, which I'll put a link to in the notes along with the episode... Ooh. Um, that you said that exams and academia wasn't always necessarily something that came easily to you, but nonetheless you've really pursued it and gone on to research not just elephants, but also arthropods, and shamefully I had to Google arthropods. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Probably shouldn't admit that. that, but I was wondering how how you kind of overcame that, you know, that barrier and nonetheless went on to pursue, you know, lots of research that yeah. you've done. It was really hard. Yeah. Um, it's weird because... Now, I get a lot... When I tell people that, they're a little bit shocked, I think. I think they're a bit like, okay, you, you haven't always, already been academically that focused. And for me, um, when it, particularly, like you said, when it comes to exams, I used to be so stressed about it. I used to panic. And, that, and now, to be honest, I think there's still that element of I want to do so well that almost like my emotions and everything else gets in the way and I get a lot of anxiety around it and um yeah I made it really my focus particularly once I struggled with my a-level grades mm -hmm. I thought this is just it's going to be impossible um unless I really 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 try and work at it so after my a-levels I kind of really focused what it is well I knew I knew what it was I wanted to do I knew I wanted right. to be a biologist okay. I knew that I I love talking about it and that kind of came hand in hand um, but yeah it was just I guess it was just a lot of practice with exams um, what was the sort of self-talk that you were having with yourself to try and deal with it around exams yeah I think it was just a lot of it's okay it's going to be okay like it's better ha to have um something than to panic and have nothing and just think it's not going to be good enough yeah um i guess i was just a young you know very emotional young teenager and whatever but it did actually get in the way of of taking an exam i was so desperate and i felt that a lot of pressure um to put the perfect answer that it actually blew it completely out of the water right. and once i had maybe um groaned and, and learned that actually you just need to calm down you need to methodically go through your strengths and weaknesses and then kind of just build on them through practice and whatever then yeah eventually I'm doing a master's now so I don't really I don't really know is there it's never a simple answer it's not like you know I, I then went to a counsellor and they told me uh, you need to do this this and this yeah. it's just a lot of 
building up myself and confidence and um, just knowing that I want to do it, essentially. Yeah. And did that same kind of, I suppose, drive to tackle the academic side of things, did that map across to when you first started working behind the camera or in front of the camera? Yes, yeah. Yeah. My mum always puts it, she says, you're the most stubborn, persistent person ever. <laughs> I think that's probably part of it. 100%. So um, when I first got... Well, I knew I wanted an agent from an early... Well, beginning of university. Right. So I decided that's what I want. So it doesn't matter how I get there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And um, um, through making my own videos and knowing that that's what I loved, I thought, OK, I'm going to get an agent. So I was very persistent. I think at one point I was emailing like every day for like a couple of weeks or a month or whatever it was it was ridiculous <laughs> and uh, she kept on coming back saying no you have to do better you have to get a new show reel practice more go out tell some really passionate stories that you love around your your local area or in Wales or across the UK whatever and um, and then yeah that she eventually was like oh, okay I think she just was like okay we'll give her a trial see what happens and with that I kind of ran with it and then just managed to get my first job on CBeebies and that drive is definitely still there yeah. <laughs> What was it that first, you, know, you say you knew from sort of the start of university that you wanted an agent? What was it that first made you want to either get behind or in front of a camera to, to do, yeah, presenting, and wildlife filming? Yeah, so I would be like, wow, this is an amazing animal. For example, something simple like a seal. I'm like, if you think about how, seals, they're pretty funny aren't they they're like these really weird looking marine mammals going back now to my first days yeah well I want to talk about it so then there's no one else to film me no one else wanted to film me <laughs> so I just ended up like buying a flippy camera and would hold the camera and talk to the camera it was just kind of a passion project really mm. that was the that's how it started and then I started to look a bit further I was kind of had a bit of a journalistic um spin on things so I was learning about animal hoarding and I thought that was really interesting both from the human's point of view but obviously I was like I'm going in with the whole thing of why are these animals being hoarded and it was really kind of a one of my first passion journalist stories yeah. so I got in touch with like the head of RSPCA or whatever it was and went to their HQ in London by myself with a flippy camera and like stuck it on a not even a tripod I think it was just set on a table and I think they were just a bit like okay clearly she's very passionate about it <laughs> I'm just going to give her the time of day um, and was this for like the student newspaper or was this just a video that you made yourself I just wanted to make a video about okay. animal hoarding and tell the story um, that's it yeah so I wanted to ask about that a little bit because it feels like you take a bit of a different approach to presenting wildlife stuff than maybe what would be traditionally considered wildlife filmmaking in two ways first in that you know in your in your videos you're right in there with your gopros on your wrist and with your selfie stick so techno technology clearly plays an important role in kind of enabling you to do something that's a bit different from maybe what was possible in the past and then also platforms like youtube have clearly facilitated you just you know going well i can just self-publish yeah and build up a profile for myself right yeah absolutely and those two the fact that we have those advantages now so important for anyone that does want to go into wildlife film and conservation um i'm working on a project oh, i should probably shouldn't say this actually okay i'll tell you about this after because this isn't for the podcast <laughs> okay um yeah but for anyone that wants to go into wildlife film and conservation 
all you need is even your phone, something as simple as that. Yeah. And you can make any story that you want and put it out there. And uh, you'll be surprised, I think, by the interaction it gets. And you may never know, it could create a call to action or a petition or really gain traction by just doing it because you want to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, both those two things are very important. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's clearly... So, for example, the piece that you did on lampreys for BBC, uh, what's it called again? Sorry, BBC Earth Unplugged. BBC Earth Unplugged. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) I was thinking unearthed, but that's a green piece thing. Um, For BBC Earth Unplugged, it's very polished. You know, it's clearly filmed by professional cameras, and that's a great piece. But then at the other end of things, you know, you've got pieces like you know, I want to come on to the salmon piece actually because I find that an interesting one. But lots of pieces like that where it's filmed on a selfie stick, and the quality of the footage isn't necessarily you know polished um, yeah polished but what comes across is something a bit different which is the gritty the grittiness the reality and the passion and enthusiasm that you clearly have and actually that brings me on to the question that I wanted to ask about the leaping salmon video because you know that that's one of two or three ones that you've published that like salmon fail I'm interested in why you chose to publish those pieces where and I'm sure there's a good reason, but where you go after seeing something and you completely fail to see it. Um, it's a story, and mm. I think a lot of people who watch BBC Earth Unplugged videos, they watch it, they're in awe of that animal, they learn about it, and they don't have that whole realistic view on what it's like to go out and find your own wildlife. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time... Well, a lot of the time I've spent in the field, I often don't find the wildlife I'm out to see. And that's totally part of looking for nature and being in nature. You don't always get to see the glammy bits that are seen slow-mo as it comes (laughs) up the river on its way to spawn on this crazy migration. You don't see that always. And I think it just adds that kind of personal element to the story while keeping that information about, you know, why Sam's born in there. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe you've seen that video. <laughs> it's fantastic. I think people should go and watch it. But yeah, the, <laughs> yeah, the moment at the end is just brilliant. It's I've yeah, I've got a lot. Of, um, I think mm. it's you know, like I like I said a moment ago, I think it it's really really fresh and different. Mm. And clearly, that's why you know you've you. had the success that you have. But it was just really fun going through a YouTube channel and seeing that it was great. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> The other thing to add as well is that not everything you put out has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. in a lot of what I have put out, I've learnt um, what works and what doesn't. Put out things whether you think it's good or not um, and try not to take everything that's written about it too too personally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You'll always get some random comment from somewhere in the world of someone who's... yeah That really infuriates <laughs> yeah. you and you're just like, I don't care, Robot yeah. 101 from <laughs> yes, Japan. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, uh, what else did I want to ask? So, so yeah, I'm interested in that feedback process as well and how you've developed your presenting style. Were you, you know, you said you put out things and sometimes they don't work. So were you A, kind of developing your style yourself, but also were you B, getting feedback from other people and taking that into account as well? Um, so for my videos online, mm-hmm. like, it's very different to what I do in the presenting world and yeah. BBC Earth. Um, funnily enough, they they were starting to go down the whole let's do handheld kind of nitty gritty um, videos and actually there's one of those style videos coming out soon, we did uh, Bear Rescue in Romania it's an 11 minute piece so it's quite a long piece for YouTube but it's a very um, 
me on a journey to go rescue this bar, uh, bar <laughs> to go rescue this bear. Um, it's a very personal and I guess nitty gritty video as opposed to that polished kind of um, piece to camera mm. official style. Um, so yeah, feedback from the channel on BBC Earth is completely different to the feedback I get on, on my channel. Yeah. Um, it changes, but I guess my style is I've always just kind of gone with who I am. Um, if there's a story I want to tell, I'll tell it, and then I'll just throw in some twists and turns in between. <laughs> and what role has Nature Watch played in all this, which I suppose we must bring up because of our mutual friend Peter Cooper. Peter Cooper! <laughs> Woo! Part of the originals, Avengers! <laughs> um, yeah, Nature Watch was amazing, yeah. and the fact it still lives on is like the best thing ever. Genuinely, I took a lot from Nature Watch. I think the team in that first year and actually seeing it go go on is am- is amazing because the whole thing just came from the students. There was for, for people who don't know what it is, maybe you could explain. Yeah, the sentences what it is actually. Well, basically, Nature Watch is a rip off of Spring Watch. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is shameless, even it's in the shameless. opening sequence. Oh yeah, yeah similar the music, music yeah. the structure. We literally looked at Spring Watch and thought. What makes Spring Watch work? Let's yeah. make it our own. But in doing that, we had this this format and structure there, and it was just a group of students that were really passionate about wildlife filmmaking. They each had their own set of skills, came together and made some brilliant wildlife pieces. And very quickly, you know, within our first couple of videos, we had like 10K views. And the universities loved it, and other students loved it, and even Spring Watch loved it. So they had seen it within the first couple of videos, which mm. is amazing. And um, yeah, that that did play an important role for me, knowing that other students had a similar interest. Um, we could all do it together, and it was completely off our own backs. Awesome. Um, I'm just looking at my list of questions and thinking, it's another one of those interviews where I've written down way more questions than I can possibly get through. It's okay, we'll try and plow through <laughs> um, I want to fit this in. I think we need to have an we honest can... talk about puffins. Okay, fair. <laughs> we do. Because you are scarred, literally. Yeah, they're still there. Why are they still so fresh? So when was that? It's about... It's two weeks ago. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, physically, I think I'll be fine, but emotionally, I don't think I'll ever be okay. Um, so I really enjoyed your talk at Country Isle Live, which was where we met uh, only a week ago. I because know. to me, that feels like forever ago. And you were doing a talk on animal adaptations, which was fantastic. Thank you. And maybe you can say a little bit about the puffin, which was number four. Four? Yeah. Is it number four? Something yeah, like number that. four. It was up in the, the top spot simply because of the new behaviour. So, as you go back, so I've spent a lot of time with puffins on uh, Skoma Island off of Pembrokeshire, and I think they're amazing. They're charismatic. Everyone loves a puffin. Um, the interesting thing about Pembrokeshire in my time and being there is how in Pembrokeshire only, across the UK, they're increasing in numbers, mm. whereas across the UK, they're declining. And it's it's a really cool link to why we should be protecting habitat and um, it's all to do with the eelgrass which supports the sand eels the sand eel population is booming so you have all these amazing colonies of seabirds leading on to the other seabirds because the puffin gets all the like, recognition <laughs> all, the all the love they look like little clowns yeah. yeah yeah people love puffins and as you were explaining at Country for Alive they're amazingly adapted yeah. Do. yeah absolutely so the um i particularly love this this story about a new behavior that's been observed so blackback gulls on on Skoma island are one of the main predators not for just shearwaters but for puffins and their chicks and 
and actually a lot of things on uh, on Skoma Island. But puffins have adapted to uh, basically when they're getting chased by blackback gulls, which is quite common. Uh, they have mouthful of sand eels. Obviously, that that gull wants those sand eels, mm. and then the puffins learned. I don't know whether it's by accidentally um, actually being <laughs> panicked, but by pooing. As they're flying. As they're flying, they essentially kind of distract the gull and they think they've dropped the sand eel. So the gull launches it towards what is only going to be a horrible, distasteful surprise. Mm. And the the puffin goes off with all these sand eels in, in its mouth. Amazing. I think that's awesome. And the fact that that's spread across the whole colony is also awesome. Uh, but of course, there's also the, the bill that I love, which is, everyone loves that bright sheath that they have um, in the breeding season and it's perfectly adapted for a puffin's life <laughs> <laughs> and they're incredibly strong as well which they need to be for being so you know for for the kind of life that they live and what, another of the previous podcast episodes actually is with an oxford researcher and she okay. was the one who found out that the welsh puffins people used to think that in the winter they just sort of lived on the sea near wales but she put tags on them and found out that actually they migrate to Canada. Do they? And we didn't know this until about three years ago when oh, she fantastic. did this research. So huh. she's been doing some really interesting stuff off the Welsh coast. I think it might even be the Skoma puffins. It, well, it, it would be, because that's where their main colony... So is that all the puffins, or do you uh, know how they... Pass a lot of them. I mean, it's kind that's of the predominant behaviour amongst them is in the winter, not to stick on the waters around mm. Wales, but to migrate across the whole Atlantic to Canada and this is in the episode um, that you can have a listen to, but her research has shown that also two puffins that migrate, maybe this is sheer waters, but if, if they migrate not with each other, but close to each other, mm. they will have better breeding success the next season, and it's something to do with something to do with timing of their return but it's really fascinating stuff that is awesome, this is why puffins yeah. are amazing seabirds yeah. are amazing seabirds are amazing um, Gosh, I just think that for such a little orc, they're completely underappreciated. That being said, you think they're horrific, and there are other <laughs> seabirds which are in need of conserving that are just as amazing. <laughs> no, I think they're wonderful. So I've just spent two weeks on Lunga, which is one of the Treshnish Isles, just off Mull, and I spent a week awesome. there back in May as well. There'll be a podcast episode about that coming up very soon. Um, <laughs> Click in the link below. Yep. <laughs> yep, find that in the show notes. Um, and uh, we were doing... The first week was doing shearwater surveying, which was amazing. Awesome. Could speak for hours about that actually. Um, and the second week was doing the second two weeks were doing storm petrol surveying. What? Yeah. I'm so jealous. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for fun in the evenings, mm. we were. Do you know what snagging is? Snagging. So is it's that... it's officially called snagging, which is where you have a fishing rod with a little bit of wire on the end. Okay. And you crawl up to the puffin and you catch it round the ankle. I have. Is that okay? Is that ethical? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. That's the method of catching. That's the puffins. method of catching them. Although you're suing them. Well, you're kind of putting a bit of a hook around their foot. <laughs> um, and on the islands, we don't call it snagging; we call it fertling. It's just a made-up name that. for it. Fertling. And then once you've fertled your puffin, you can put a ring on it. But quite understandably, <laughs> the puffins are not that happy about this, mm. and they're also they look really cute, but they've got hearts of pure evil. <laughs> <laughs> And their beaks and their and claws. Weapons. I've come back with just, you know, umpteen scars from them, which I'm quite proud of. But yeah, they're, they're not what they appear from a distance. Oh, no, they do have this 
I think people have this perception that they're just really cute and cuddly. Yeah. That is so funny, though. I mean, I've never battled it out with a puffin, but I wouldn't want to, so... No, you Well wouldn't. done to you. <laughs> Very brave. I'm sort of, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've been to London a couple of times, and I've been standing on the underground thinking no one knows what I've been through. <laughs> just want to shout out to the tomb. I've wrestled puffins. <laughs> that should be, like, your tag name. Yeah, maybe. Wherever you go, puffin wrestler. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> With the, is the puffin now your most feared seabird? Yeah, it's definitely my most feared seabird, yeah. I've even held a razor bill, that wasn't as bad. Shags, not as bad. Okay. Yeah, the puffin. The puffin is, the puffin pure is my evil. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm adding it to my evil list. Yeah. But similarly, so the Treshnish Isles, it's interesting as well, are a special area of conservation, which is a European mm. designation. Mm. Um, and seemingly, um, the population there is stable or increasing. Mm. Unlike the Shetland Isles, for example, where there's been a lot of news coverage recently where puffins and other seabirds are being forced to fly hundreds of kilometres mm. just to find food, and that's right. leading to the crashes in the numbers. So yeah. it shows that where there are designations that influence the activities that go on near those places, it can help to protect the seabird populations. Mm. Yeah, as is most of Wales, actually, protected yeah. under... And it'll be interesting yeah. to see what the final results are from our shearwater and our storm petrol surveying as well. So just out of interest, your storm <coughs> petrol survey, were you using boxes at night or nets or how were you doing that? We were going to try and do a bit of ringing at night, okay. but the weather wasn't very good. Okay. Um, but the actual survey mm. is done by using tape playback. Okay. So okay. you basically go, it's a bit different from shearwaters. So with shearwaters, you find any suitable burrow. Yep. Um, so we surveyed all the burrows. Okay. And I've now got the sheer water core just ingrained. ingrained. <laughs> but with storm petrols, you're just serve you're doing transacts through suitable okay. habitat, okay. basically, Fantastic. and playing the call and listening for a response. And they're just so cute because they do this little the best. Purr. Yeah. Yeah. I love storm petrols. Yeah. I saw a few on my recent trip to Alaska out at sea. Can't remember the species. Beautiful. Love them. Yeah. So small. They're amazing. Yeah, yeah they're tiny. Tiny. Yeah. How do they do it? <laughs> Tell me the secrets. flying as well. <laughs> and not puffins actually. They're pretty clumsy at like any yeah. landing or takeoff. But yeah. We did a little bit of rigging of storm petrels, and I helped to release a few of them. And you just hold out your hand, and they sit on it, and then they just sort of flop off. <laughs> Are you <laughs> they okay? They take off gracefully. They're just sort of like, <laughs> and they flop onto the floor. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, well, maybe that brings me on nicely to. Um, one of my other questions so you said you've just been to Alaska so I was wondering what are some of the this is always a really hard question for people what's one of the most special wildlife moments that you've had due to your filming or otherwise and if it helps to narrow it down a bit maybe recently maybe in the past week or the past month or whatever okay this is one you've heard before it's about the humpbacks oh yeah yeah <laughs> sorry to no 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 go for again. it no this is a great story definitely the humpback whales my first time seeing humpback whales mm. I went all the way to the Azores because of the huge array of whales they have there. Didn't see one humpback whale, so I had to strike again. So luckily, uh, they have loads and loads of humpback whales at this time of year that are feeding in these inside passage waters of southeast Alaska. Stunning. Like We're talking like you'll go on a boat and guaranteed you will see spouts all around you. It's fantastic. Mm. Um, but there's this behaviour called bubble net feeding, which I got to observe. I've read about um, so many times and it essentially is a cooperative feeding strategy by these humpback whales, which is unique to southeast Alaska. Because bubble net feeding is seen in humpback whales um, in other locations, but actually doing it as a group in such big numbers has only been seen here in mm -hmm. Southeast Alaska. 
Do you want me to explain a little bit about what bubble net feeding yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, please do. Okay, so uh, it's essentially a way of um, feeding in high concentrations on, on lots of krill or small shoals of fish. So um, Pacific herring is like the main... At this time of year, there's a lot of Pacific herring in these waters. And up to 20 humpback whales will dive down, all in a kind of an organised manner. They will get in a circle and start blowing bubbles and you can if you're on the surface if you're a bird you can see all of this happening Mm. all these bubbles coming up in a perfect circle and then one humpback whale who's leading it who's organizing the whole thing will scream underwater literally scream it sounds like a scream which signals to all the other humpbacks that it's time to go up to the surface and then they all lunge feed and basically like mop up all of these tiny fish or krill amazing behavior i saw eight individuals doing it at one time and with all these huge huge mouths just coming up at once and that's lunge feeding that's essentially lunge feeding but it's called this cooperative behavior bubble net feeding um you see lunge feeding in in all baleen whales but yeah this behavior is the most epic thing i've ever seen i was like screaming and shouting and borderline (laughs) crying (laughs) Where were you, in the sky, in, in a boat, in the water? <laughs> I wish I was in the water. I was on a boat, um, and I saw it numerous days. Um, uh, when, they, when they do feed, when they do bubble net feed, it happens repeatedly. And um, as you know from Country Fire Live, from that footage, I got one of the indicators is seabirds. So they're a great way of telling where it's about to happen, because you just see them beelining for this bubble ring that's forming on the surface, mm. and then you're kind of ready with... Ca- it's, the best for filming because it's like a precursor for this epic thing you're about to see which is really hard to capture on camera usually when yeah. things are so unpredictable yeah but it's great follow the birds they'll show you where to shoot it's the best <laughs> what seabirds were, were they gannets no just, just gulls oh just gulls just, just gulls just gulls <laughs> those gulls <laughs> no gulls yeah just normal gulls could you say gulls. a little bit about sorry this is asking you to repeat stuff at Country Fall Live again Please but I thought me. it was awesome that adaptation about the I'm going to get it wrong, but like, are they called the baleens that they have? The big sort of bits to hold the seawater when they lunge feed? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, baleen whales, they have a number of things which make them so efficient in feeding in this way. So, very different to your toothed whales, which would uh, have teeth to eat marine mammals or fish, larger fish. Uh, but baleens are all about filter feeding. So, they have these rows of baleen plates in, in, in their mouths attached to their, draw, uh, attached to their jaws. And then on their lower jaw, they have these what's called ventral plates or throat grooves and that really helps their whole pouch their mouth inflate and kind of hold a lot more water so up to five thousand gallons of water which is mental in one go in in one go in one mouthful as they're lunch feeding and of course that water needs to go somewhere preferably not on their throat Because, they because their move. throat is tiny, as it's I remember a, you saying. It's a grapefruit. The size of a grapefruit, yes. Tiny. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realise that. Yeah. A lot of people think they swallow birds because mm. they literally couldn't if they wanted yeah. to, and they'd know about it. They have really maybe a puffin. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a puffin may go. We can only hope. <laughs> you would love this, or maybe not. I saw the other two species of puffin. Oh, did you? Tufted uh, puffin tufted and, and horned. horned. I've oh, seen wow. all the puffins. You've seen all of them. All of the puffins. Oh my god. Anyway, by the way, tufted puffins are the coolest. Just saying, they're like they're like the funky uncles of the puffin world. Puffins, but with quiffs. With really good hairstyles, all of them perfectly oh, gelled. Anyway, back to the humpbacks. Back to baleen. 
So there's all <laughs> so there's all this water um, that they they need to push through this baleen and to leave that food resource behind. So it's essentially uh, a th- their throat pouch is a muscle, so they contract that muscle, which pushes all that water out. That then filters out through their baleen, and they're left with that food resource to swallow. So, yeah, it's a really cool way. And actually, if you think about it, I mentioned in Country Far Live the history of whales. It's at some point along along the line, we started to see these baleen whales that were completely taking advantage of a whole new food resource, mm. which is really awesome. Um, something completely different to what you get with you know eating seals by orcas. It's just yeah. Anyway. Did you find out what Megoptera means yet? No! I don't think it's anything to do with pterodactyl. I was like, god damn, what ask an me any question. <laughs> Tell me the meaning of Megoptera, go. I was like, no, no, it wasn't even that. It was, what is the meaning of the uh, scientific name of the humpback whale, which had been on the screen to the audience like two minutes before, but I don't know whether or not you could see the same slides. Well, I could see it. I could see oh, it on okay. the tiny screen. But I was just, I was thrown by it. And then he was going pterodactyl, pterodactyl. I was like... One eye. So, well, I mean, we could go with this. Oranges, yeah. apples, history. I think you could have blagged it at that stage. I totally should have. Yeah. There was a mega pterodactyl back in the day <laughs> that landed in the water. Loosely related. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did like how when he was started talking about dinosaurs, you were like, I think we might be getting slightly confused here. <laughs> Come sit down. Come sit down. Oh, it was really funny. Oh dear. Legend. Um, what else did I want to ask about? Um, I'm interested in um, the role that kind of being active and um, exercise, and you seem to throw that into your presenting as well. What what importance does that have for you? It's very important. I've always loved off-road running, and a lot of the runs I do, I do it for charity. That just happens to be... It gives me a bit of purpose, I think. So I did um, a run a couple of years ago, two hundred up to 200 miles, which is short of, uh, through Portugal for the World Land Trust. It was, yeah, in 10 days. So it was, like, by myself with a, just, like, a tent, and then I was, like... Okay, we, that's another conversation we okay. should have after the recording. Okay, maybe I should. Yeah, I'll bring that... Um, but I guess, and I'm, I'm planning one next year. I don't know where it is or what it's going to be yet. But for me, it's, I love running. It's a great time for me to think about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it's number one in terms of immersing yourself with wildlife. Often if you're running and you have headphones in, you miss a lot, actually. Yeah, um, yeah. That being said, I have seen some great things while out running, um, whether it's just, you know... A deer and the, that happens to be like flushed, flushed out from through the shrubbery or whatever. It could could be something really small, but yeah, running's really important to me. Being outdoors is really important, and I think the more you're outdoors, the more you're exposed to wildlife, the better the connection you have with it, and um, the more you enjoy it. And how does it feel to be in front of camera, communicating to people about the wildlife that you love? Um, I enjoy it. I love it. I think it's brilliant. I think I have sometimes a very... Uh, my passion gets a bit too on top of what I'm trying to communicate. I think um, I have a lot to learn when it comes to how to communicate science still. I'm definitely still kind of trying to figure out what really gets to people most, gets them gripped and gets them really interested in science. And I think that can be done in so many different ways that really everyone's constantly learning and... Um, in terms of being a presenter, it's fun. I feel very lucky and very humble to be able to then go and 
tell these amazing stories. And really, I just almost feel like a, a middle... How do I describe it? I feel like I'm that middle tool that's being used, I guess, to give nature a voice to others. And if I can really better the way that I do that, I just get so much of a, a buzz from it. I really enjoy it if someone comes to my talk and they're like, oh, I didn't know that whip spider, you know, has these crazy long front whatever for sensing. I think it's a really lovely feeling mm. when somebody actually relates to what you're saying. That's a long-winded answer. Not a very good one, sorry. Don't know what else to add. It's hard to describe. I really enjoy it. There's all the negativity that comes with it, with the industry of being in TV and things. But yeah. to be honest bugger all that sorry you won't be able to include that oh no I can include that okay no. <laughs> okay well to be honest bugger it because it's not about you know how you look and you know you need to have like straight to teeth or something which I, I do I should have braces but I just I don't have time I've got too much to do <laughs> um, but yeah I think we're so lucky to be in a time where we're able to use video as you say pick up a camera and tell that short story and the impact it could have right now is so big that I don't know why anyone would hesitate or feel that they, they can't you know, really put themselves out there mm. Yeah, media is changing at the same time as the natural world is also changing yeah, quite a lot it's 100%. an interesting cross section of yeah. things um, right. I'm just babbling now it's just you've got me going No, it's fine um, <laughs> Let's wrap up, I think um, with a What's, couple of how questions How are we doing? We've got about five or ten minutes we left, but if, I feel like we've got a, a few post-episode things yeah. as well. So. <laughs> well, we can definitely overrun, though, if um, I've got an extra about 15, 20 minutes. Okay. Um, well, I've just got a couple of questions that I always ask towards the end. So, um, one is, are there any particular mistakes or failures that you feel actually set you up for success later on? That have set yeah. me Um... <laughs> a really stupid one just because it's the first thing that yeah. came to my mind my first ever official audition for CVBs and it was for a show called the Let's Go Club and on it I was to be the wildlife expert so I was really excited about this but they had to get to know me and had to know that I was going to be energetic enough to fit on TV uh, for kids so I went in and, and they just kind of threw it on me they said show us your special skill <laughs> I was like, oh my, what is my special skill? So the, I have two skills, right? This is it. Actually, I have three. Two of those are not appropriate. Um, <laughs> one is spelling blood with my hands. And I thought, that's going to be a bit creepy if I do that for a kid's show. <laughs> that's out of the question. The other one is balancing pints on my head. Again, not appropriate for kids. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I went with my headstand which I've mastered over the years, but it would be okay but if the room that we weren't in wasn't the size of a small box. It was tiny, and there was six other people in this room. So I just did this headstand, and it was the most awkward. I did it for about 60 seconds, and as I was headstanding, I was talking about trying to teach the kids how to do a headstand. Were there kids there? No, no it was you... all just recorded, right. and it was incredibly awkward. And I came out of that interview thinking, this is absolute rubbish. I've messed it up. I feel awful. I nearly fell on the producer. It was just like, all went out the window. Anyway, long story short, uh, they called me back, and they said, you've got it. And they just loved the fact that I was so catastrophically out there and enthusiastic <laughs> that they just, 
Yeah, so it was an example of of a massive fail that turned into a great positive. That's a good lesson. <laughs> that's a rubbish story, but it's one that always makes me laugh. Oh, that's really good. Um, <laughs> and finally, if you could put a message on a billboard for thousands, millions of people to read, what would it be? Oh, that is so hard. Puffins are evil. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's mine. <laughs> Um, that is really, really hard. How many words is limited to like... <laughs> Whatever you want, a quote from yourself, a quote okay. from someone else. Yeah, I can't remember the exact words. It's a John, yeah. John Muir quote that um, my friend showed me recently and I, I don't know why I've never seen it until now, but it's when you tug on one thing in nature, you find it's attached to, to everything else in the world. Mm. That is so true. Everything is connected. Um, I if you're a bin man, if you're a IT expert, a wildlife nut, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are or what you do, everything is connected. And I think sometimes it can be so hard in conservation and to get people that maybe are not exposed to nature or don't get that chance to get them inspired about it. And I think um, if we could just instill this feeling of responsibility in the everyday person, then maybe we'll start to make a, a bit more of a positive change. Nice. Okay, Lizzie, thanks. That Thank was amazing. You. Is there anything I haven't asked about or that you wanted to say? Um, yes. Go for it. Yes, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So this year is Year of the Sea in Wales. It's a special every year they have. I think last year was Year of the Sport or something like that, um, getting outdoors. Um, but I'm really, really, really passionate about people celebrating the wildlife on their own doorstep mm -hmm. so all summer this year i've been running my own trips off of wales um to see all the wildlife that are there the amazing bird colonies dolphins gannets uh, everything and um really trying to get your everyday person inspired to get out there and just mm -hmm. to kind of see the most wild spots that are around them so in theme of that um if you can if you're not by a coast maybe go in, into your back garden or go into a local patch, uh, your forest or around an urban lake for example just try and get out and see see what you can find in your local area and um, explore your own wildlife on your doorstep and try and connect to it because I think that's so important and if you can get to a coast, go to Wales because it's epic <laughs> <laughs> it's epic um, yeah I could go on for hours about this because there's a whole issue of plastics and our oceans and stuff. Oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't even touch on the plastics <clears> thing. We'll be yeah. here till, till Friday <laughs> next week. And how can people come on your trips? It's Yes, yeah, so I have one left. When oh, is wow. this podcast going out? I don't know. Okay, if it's before the 27th of August, <laughs> which it okay. probably won't be. Um, yeah, I have one more trip, 27th of August, but I'm also running trips, hopefully next year. Um, Great. So I have a website, lizdailywildlife.com, where you can find all the details there. Great. And yeah, just learn to love your wildlife. The end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, sorry, we didn't touch on the plastics thing at that's all. That's okay, that's fine. Yeah. Do you want to? Uh, it's up to you, it's your podcast. Well, it's, no, it's your time. No, 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 I'm, I'm happy to chat. I'm on a day off because I worked at Country Fire Live. Uh, are you actually working there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, was it not clear? Because, oh my gosh, no, I was bagging people for my podcast. What? <laughs> Don't Did tell you? National Trust. Okay. Did you get Ray Mears? 
No. Did he not want to, or you didn't ask him? I didn't get a chance to speak to Ray oh, Mears. Oh, he was out like a shot, wasn't he? Yeah, that's the thing. And um, Me and Ray Mears nearly at a... Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. You and Plastics. Nearly what? Well, no, I was just going to say, when he started to talk about hunting on stage, and I was oh. like, this could get real. We chatted about it after the talk, actually. Yeah. And I was just like, interesting views on hunting. And I was like, um... Oh, yes, I thought I caught the end of what he was saying. I think that's when I came into the room. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were on the panel. Yeah. Yeah. I caught the end of him talking about that. Yeah. Answering that question. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff yeah. like this, I think it's great. Um, <clears throat> plastics. Yeah, we could talk about plastics for a minute if you want. Yeah. Is it doable in a minute, though? It's yeah, I think so. It. I think, um, okay, so in theme of you, you of the sea, then, let's stick with that. Um, I've spent a lot of time out at sea this year off of Wales and I have actually been exposed to the realities of plastic not microplastics and things um, mm -hmm. obviously they're a lot harder to measure a lot harder to understand and actually I think in terms of our future thinking about the the effect of plastic we need to really get on top of microplastics and mm -hmm. um, I think okay this is going to be hard in a minute um, but I think that I'll take your time it's fine yeah the, uh, with microplastics the it's double-edged the fact that we're now finding it in the food that we're eating means that people are starting to notice it a lot more mm, which is yeah. really really important um but anyway off of the coast of wales um on grassham island in particular it's so heartbreaking to see all these gannets that have their nests full full of netting um and fishing line and i see that every time i'm out there in huge numbers um and we'll see that until they all leave again and I, I, I look not many people go on the island and when they do the researchers they actually try and take away all the plastic mm. but we need to get get real with the uh, the issue of plastic and I think we fantastic steps in the right direction with single-use plastic bottles and straws and all of that um, in Cardiff I have my own campaign, so it's called Do You Suck? It's quite an aggressive name, but I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I love that. I didn't know the name of it. Great. Yeah, and there Do are other suck. cities that are taking this up now, right? Yes, yeah. Bristol, London, and they're all young female science communicators and scientists, which is awesome. I have them in five different locations across the UK now in urban areas where they're actually going out to their local restaurants and bars and saying, why have you got plastic straws? And um, I've been out on a rampage a few times around Cardiff trying to uh, get the whole of the city centre straw free so that's still ongoing by the end of the year I'm going to have my total number hopefully it'll be most of the city centre but yeah um, we're making positive steps I think in the right direction in reducing our plastic waste but mm -hmm. it, we still have a lot more to do yeah babble 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh. that was amazing oh, I could just keep going on forever yeah do you okay. have any other things you want to add or like Ugh. No, I don't think so. I could okay. talk about seabirds for hours. Yes, let's talk about shear water. <laughs> I'll stop this okay. Thank you so much. That was so I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. And you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org, on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.